The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Jesus is Better Than. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 5, 25-32. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own, hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the, does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. I'm tackling this this topic because it's a hot button topic in our in our culture in our society right now Uh, sex and sexuality and my whole point is this I'm gonna tell it to you right away Jesus is better than your sexuality okay Jesus is better than your sexuality now depending on your sex life you might be thinking one or two things here one I hope so right or two you don't know my sex life right but I can guarantee you you're wrong. I guarantee you Jesus is better than your sexuality, but let me prove it to you to the best of my ability this morning. Now, we're going to start in a strange place, okay? Most of the time, when you, if you've ever been in church and you've heard a preacher talk about sex, the first thing he does is he goes to the book of Genesis and he talks about creation. The video kind of did that a little bit this morning. We will go there, but that's not where I want to go first, okay? Uh, I want us to open up our Bibles to the book of Proverbs chapter 5. Open up your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's, there's a few laying in the aisles. We, we, throw them, we scatter them along on the floor there so you can pick them up, or you can pull it up on your app. Um, Sacred City has their own app in the app store. You can, de- you can check it out there. I want you to go to Proverbs chapter 5. We need to go there together today. I think we're going to, we might be surprised, okay? I think we might be surprised to see what the Bible actually has to say about sex. Now, Proverbs, if you know about Proverbs, Proverbs is written as a father to a son, okay, as the instruction of a wise, godly father that he gives to his son. And Proverbs chapter 5 actually starts out that way. Verse 1, it says, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. Now, Proverbs is almost right in the middle. If you're having a problem finding it, it's almost right in the middle of your Bible. Or you can go to contents first, right, our table of contents and look it up there. So Proverbs chapter 5, and we're going to go to verse 15. All right? When you're there, say there. I want to make sure we're there because we're following along with me. I think we, we've got some up on the screens too. Good. All right, let's, let's read this uh, verse 15, and we're going to go through 21. Again, a son to his father. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Now, you're going to see right away, this, this is an analogy, okay? Uh, the cistern, he's talking about his wife. Okay, so he's telling his son to drink water from his own 
wife. Okay, well, you're going to see, well, what is the drinking water talking about? Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets. What's he talking about? Let them be for yourself alone, and not for strangers. So he's saying, whatever he's talking about here, he's saying it's exclusive. There's something exclusive about this. Now look at this next verse. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoice. Have a lot of joy in her. Now look, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Okay. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Men, let me just say, that's a coffee cup verse right there. All right? We, we need that on T-shirts. I'll be honest. One time, I was like 19 or 20, and this, I got interviewed for this magazine, and they said, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? I gave them that. And they said no. All right? They straight up said no. Now, it's a Bible verse. It's in here, okay? Now, look. Let's keep going. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated? Be drunk. Why should you be drunk, my son, with a forbidden woman? And embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Verse 23 says, He dies for lack of discipline. Because of his great folly, he is led astray. Now, I want to start out with these verses because many of us think that God is some kind of prude, or as the video said, a cosmic killjoy. We think that the Bible is outdated and sexually repressed, or sexually repressive. I've heard often from people that we need to throw off our puritanical notions about sex. The only problem with that statement is the Puritans were staunchly devoted to the Bible, okay? The Puritans were Bible men and women. So when you say they had a Puritanical idea of sex, they had a biblical idea of sex. And and I've even heard Tim Keller say that the Puritans would have men locked up in the the gallows, or whatever those things are called, um, for for, if a wife came and said, my my husband, we're not having sex, he would get locked up, church discipline, right, for not having sex with his wife, Right? So they loved their Bible. They had a really high view of their Bible. And the Bible has this really high view of sex. The Bible is not a prudish book in one bit. This right here is how a father talks to his son about sex. Sex, this is basically what he says here. Sex is for your wife. Don't share it with anyone else. It's exclusive for your wife. Let her breasts always, at all times, fill you with delight. Be satisfied in them. Get drunk on your wife's love. Be intoxicated, he says. God is watching. So he ends it. Now, that's backwards for me because it's typically the negative. God is watching. Don't. God is watching. It's dirty. He says, be infatuated with your wife. Be completely satisfied sexually with her body. Love her deeply. Be drunk on her love because God is watching. God is not a prude. Now that makes me squirm just a little bit. That's how how this guy talks to his son. I'm more prude than that. 
If you have come to believe that God, you know, has this boring and lame view of sex and sexuality, then we need to revise our history. We need to go back and look. Look at this text. It was written roughly 2,500 years ago. 2,500 years ago. And this is how a father talks about sex to his son and talks about God to his son 2,500 years ago. So if we think we're somehow enlightened and we have some kind of this better view of sex, I feel more awkward talking to my son about sex or why that person was making out on the TV show, that that little commercial he clipped. What were they doing? Like, I feel awkward. The writer of Proverbs doesn't. Now, there have been many prudes among God's people, but God's not one of them. When we understand his teaching about sex, we won't be one either. What we're going to learn today is that God actually has this cosmic, this cosmically high view of sex. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But right here, I want to see that Christian men are commanded to have a lot of sex with their wife. Okay? Men, you missed the spot to say amen. What in the world? Not one man said a thing. He did. All right, there we go. Jared, you're getting married in six days. I should have heard something from you. Come on. Come on. We are commanded to drink deeply from our wife's well until we're drunk on her love. To be completely satisfied and delight in her physical body. See, here's one spot where, where I understand when the scripture says that, that uh, God's commands are not burdensome, right? I get that right here. It's not a burden to obey God in this. Now, if you are shocked, if you're like, if you're shocked right now, if you're squirming in your seat because you didn't know this stuff was in the Bible, let me just say, it's all over the Bible. The Bible is full of erotic imagery like this. And if this is a shock to you, I'm just going to present this to you, not to offend you. I'm just going to say, then you don't know your Bible very well. And that means that you've got all kinds of notions about God and sex and sexuality that actually aren't from the Bible. They're just stereotypes of what you heard on the news or what you heard wherever, in the locker room or reading a book. They're not actually from the Bible. If you've been living your life under the impression that God has some kind of negative, dirty view of sex, or that sex is only meant to serve a utilitarian purpose of procreation, then you've been influenced by something other than the Scriptures. Here in this proverb, we see the beauty of sexuality, we see this high view of sexuality, we see this father commanding his son to delight in it, to have fun to be, to drink deeply and be satisfied by it. But we also see, we can't ignore this, we also see him give warnings. We also see him drink deeply of your wife, but don't drink deeply of these other fountains. It's exclusive. Don't go here. Drink here, not here. We see the father warn his son about the dangers of his sexuality. 
It says several times throughout the proverb that sex outside of the covenant of marriage is dangerous. It's to be avoided at all costs. It will destroy him if he gives into it. Now, why is that the case? Let's just, let me ask you. If sex is good, if sex was created or we have sex and it was intended for pleasure and for happiness and for joy, why can't it be shared with whoever we want? Let me attempt to answer that for you in two ways. I'm going to attempt to answer it two ways. One, in the, the, the old-fashioned way, I'll say, and two, in a different way. The old-fashioned, I don't want to say it's old-fashioned. I don't know. How, let's just go back to Genesis. We're going to talk about creation. Most of us aren't going to be shocked by this. In Genesis 2, we read a little bit about it right there. God creates man in his own image, right? But God says that man, it's not good for man to be alone. So what does he do? God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. He made man out of the dirt. And then he caused man to fall into sleep, and he reaches in, he grabs one of man's ribs, something out of his side, and he forms a woman out of man. And what we have, the Bible says here, we have man and woman created imago Dei. What does that mean? In the image of God, man and woman represent something unique about God, something unique and distinct about man, something unique and distinct about women, that they represent the imago Dei. The differences between the sexes show us something unique about who God is and also about sex itself. So God makes woman, and then what does he do? He takes her by the hand, and he brings her to the man. This is like God walking her down the aisle of marriage, and he places her hand into his. And Adam then, when he sees woman and God brings her to him, he gets all poetic, and he says, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then this is what God's word says. Therefore, because of that, because man was created this way, woman was created this way, God brought woman to man, man is united together. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast, covenant, connection, be united for all of their life to his wife, and then they shall become one flesh. So they shall become one flesh. They shall have sex. And the one man, or and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's how the Bible starts out. Why does the anatomy of a male fit perfectly into a female? Because God designed it that way. What's it for? What's the purpose? Well, one is obvious, to make babies, right? Procreation, be fruitful and multiply. That's the only way, still, with all of our technological advances, the only way for children to be created, a male sperm must meet a female egg. But if you look closer, there's a lot more there. Before they have sex, before they consummate their union together, look at what comes first. God takes her hand, brings her to the man, and they leave their father and mother, and they hold fast to one another. What is that? That's called marriage. Leave your mother and father and hold fast, cleave to, be deeply united with each other. Now think about that. What is marriage? What's going on there? In this, before they have sex, they're brought together, and they leave their father and mother, and they meant to cleave to one another. What is that? What's going on there? Marriage is the uniting of the total personhood 
of male and female. Listen, what is that? It's saying to God, to your family, to the witnesses, to the watching world, I am exclusively hers and she is exclusively mine until death do us part. The families that used to define us don't define us anymore. Leave father and mother. That used to be my identity was the family of origin I came from. Her identity, the family of origin she came from. No longer. We're leaving that and we're cleaving to one another. We're new now. We are new. We're giving ourselves completely to this person. Hear this. The marriage is this. My money is hers. My house is hers. My possessions are hers. My past is hers. My present is hers. My future is hers. My family is hers. My love is hers. My emotions are hers exclusively. Everything I have is now hers. I am now hers. She is now mine. Not in a, I'm not going to go there, right? And I'm going to be here. This covenant is saying, I'm going to be here no matter what else. Listen, no matter what problems come our way, no matter what good times come our way, no matter who else comes my way. She's mine. I'm hers. Then, inside this covenant of safety, where we've both given ourselves totally to one another for a lifetime, now we do with our bodies what we have already done with our lives. Hear that. In marriage, we're doing with all of our life, we're coming together and we're uniting, and now after marriage, we do with our bodies what we've already done with our lives. We consummate the marriage. We are naked and vulnerable, and we literally become one flesh. So sex is meant to unite a husband and a wife in an exclusive and permanent relationship the Bible calls a marriage. It's doing with our bodies what we have already done with the rest of our lives. It's a powerful act that unites our souls. It's meant to deepen our love and our commitment and our enjoyment of one another. And as the video said, it's it's got that kind of power. It's so latent with power that if it's used outside of the covenant of marriage, it's got a lot of potentialities for danger. When people who aren't married are having sex with each other, listen, 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 please. We're not being prude. It's that you're having sex in an unsafe environment. It's going to, it destroys human flourishing. It hurts us deeply and it scars our souls. Having sex without marriage, listen, you're basically saying to the other person, I'll be naked with you physically, but I won't in every other way. You can have my body, but you can't have my money. You can have my body, but you can't have my future. You can have my body, but you can't have my emotions. It's selfish. It's wanting to be united physically and then stay as individuals in every other aspect. This is, what it, this is how damaging it is emotionally. It's saying, I want to be physically yours and I want you to be physically mine now, but I need to keep my options open in case somebody better comes along. So 
you can never truly give yourself to the other person because you're always constantly thinking, what if someone hotter comes along? What if someone with more money comes along? What if someone more attractive comes along? She's going to drop me and go to him, or he's going to drop me and go to her. See? You don't have a covenant of marriage. You don't have exclusivity or permanence, and sex is just too, pe- too powerful, and its potential for destruction is too high to be used that way. Okay? So that's one. Sex was created to unite man and woman in a permanent and exclusive covenant called marriage. When sex is used in any other way, it's damaging and destructive. Now, I'll prove that later. Just put a pin in it if you're not convinced. I'll prove it later, hopefully. But the second reason Christians don't have sex with anyone other than their spouse is that marriage and sex is meant to be an analogy of the gospel. Marriage and sex is meant to be an analogy of the gospel. Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians 5. Oops, I didn't mark that one. Ephesians 5. Verse 25. When you're there, say there. All right, cool. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. See, this is what he's saying. Jesus Christ has loved you with such a love that he came and he pursued you and he united himself to you and he's making you holy right now. And one day he's going to take you up to be with him where you're perfectly glorified and you get to be in Christ. Now let's keep reading. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Now look, he's quoting Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. See, new covenant, this is what marriage is again. Man leaves his mother and father, holds fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're having sex. Now this is what, this should blow your circuits right here. This mystery is profound. In the Greek, this is mega mysterion. <laughs> this is what Paul says. This is about, I'm about to give you a mega mystery, okay? Here's a mega mystery. You can spend your whole life studying it. You're never going to fully get it. Here's what it is. The mega mystery is this. That I'm saying that it, sex, sexuality, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. What? Marriage and sex are an analogy of the way that Jesus loves, cares for, and provides for, and saves us as his people. All, the, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, marriage is an analogy of our relationship with God. Think about that. The sheer joy and rapture and euphoria of sex is meant to show us what it's going to be like when we get to heaven and are fully united with Jesus. 
Theologians call this the beatific vision. The first time our new eyes and the new heavens and the new earth, our new eyes get to actually behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We don't have any sin hindering us anymore. We get to see Jesus for who he is in all of his glory. The closest thing on earth that can point to that is the way a man loves a woman when they're they're in a covenant of marriage and intimate embrace. When we really get to see Jesus in his glory and we're fully united to him, it will be better than the best sex on earth. Some of you thought heaven was going to be boring. Nah. Think about that. Sex is the most glorious experience our culture has. That's why we worship it. That's why every show is about it. That's why every song is about it. Sex is the God of this world. But for the Christian, sex is the appetizer to something better. Sex is the, those, those little nice biscuits that come out before your meal. They're good, but you don't want to get full on them. You'll wrap those up, put them in the purse, take them home, right? We want the lobster coming out. We want the steak coming out. We want to save room. For the Christian, sex is just an appetizer for something better that's coming later. Seeing Jesus and being united to him in the new heavens and the new earth will be better than sex. How so? Well, think about sex. That day when we meet Jesus face to face, we will be stripped bare. We will stand before him naked, completely uncovered. He will see right through us. (coughs) Excuse me. He will know us better than we know ourselves. He will know everything about us. Every intimate detail of our life, he will know and we will be known by him. We will feel known by him in that moment. We will be fully known, and this is the shocker, fully known yet fully loved. No shame. No posturing. No trying to hide our bad sides. Knowing Christ and being known by Christ in the new heavens and the new earth will be pure joy, absolute bliss. There's nothing that we can even compare it to right now. See, sex is a parable of the gospel. (coughs) My throat's not used to this. It's nakedness. Listen. It's nakedness and acceptance inside an exclusive and permanent union. Completely vulnerable, but not exposed, not taken advantage of. Fully loved, fully delighted in, fully completed. To be accepted and loved in spite of our sin and our brokenness. By who? By who? By the one. Man, this might get awkward for you. so weird to think of Jesus like this, right? Like somehow we are married to him, right? We're the bride of Christ together as the church. To be loved by him like this, 
to be loved and accepted, to be seen as sinful and wicked, but to see through that and to see us as holy and cleansed because of his work and to be loved like the one our soul is after is into us. We get that in heaven. To be cleansed and washed and sanctified and loved for eternity, even though we don't deserve it by Jesus. Jesus is better than sex. Now, this is good news for us in many ways. One, our culture says sex is the reason for life. That's what it says. Use money to get sex. Use power to get sex. Use influence to get sex. Use prestige to get sex. Use money. Use music to get sex. Use your career to get sex. Our culture basically says sex is life. So if you aren't married, if you believe that, and you aren't married, and you're a Christian... There's no way for you to live a fulfilled life. If you're single, and Scripture says sex is for marriage, but our culture says sex is life, do you see the juxtaposition there? For a Christian to be single and to be celibate, if he believes the lies of the world, then, then he can never be happy. He can never have a full life. Let me tell you this morning, that is a lie. That is a lie that if you believe it will wreck your life. Jesus was fulfilled. Jesus was fully satisfied. He lived a satisfying life, and he was single, never having one sexual encounter. So for the single person in here, you need to know that Jesus is better than sex. He's better than sex. If you're missing out on anything, if you're single for life, and and you know what? Scripture teaches that being single is good. Okay? It's good. You can love the church. You can serve the church. You can be singularly devoted to Christ. Right? Being single is good. All right? The only thing you're going to miss out on, singles, if you pursue God's gift of sexuality in His way, the only thing you're going to miss out on is the appetizer. That's it. You're going to miss out on the appetizer. But you'll get the steak. You'll get the lobster. You'll get the goods. But secondly, it's also good, good news for those that, that sex isn't, that Jesus is better than sex. Sex isn't the pinnacle. It's also good news for us who struggle with sex. Because married sex is an analogy of the gospel. It's got all kind of latent power. It's incredibly power. I use this analogy. Scripture, Proverbs actually uses this analogy. Sex is like fire. And fire is great. You can warm yourself by it. It's absolutely beautiful. It's enticing. You just sta- sit there and stare at it. It has all kind of good uses, right? But it's only good in the fireplace. It's only good in this controlled environment. It has all this power, but when it gets outside of that controlled environment, what happens? Forest fires. We just said a firefighter killed this week in fighting a forest fire. Fires are deadly. They have all kind of latent power. Many of us have felt the terrible power of sex. We've been damaged by it. We've been hurt by sex in a myriad of different ways. And if sex, if, if, the, if what the culture says is true, that sex is the best thing the world has to offer and it's the only way you're ever going to be happy, what do you do if you've been hurt by it? If sex is the best this culture has to offer and you've been abused you've been hurt, what do you do with that? Listen, I just heard on the radio last night, you saw, 
we saw uh, a really a crime against God's created order. We saw a guy unlawfully killed this lion, right? And a lot of people went went nuts over it. This is what the this is what the country music stations was listening to. This is what they said. Hey, whatever the guy's name is, I forgot his name. There's two ways you can redeem yourself for doing this terrible thing. Number one, you can't, you idiot. Number two, same thing as number one, you effer. That's what it said. Beeped it out. What's it saying? No redemption. You've sinned. You've done something you weren't supposed to do. We hate you for it. Your life is over. No redemption. That's what the culture offers us. No redemption. No way out. If you've been, if our culture says sex is God and sex is the highest thing and you've been hurt and wounded by sex, what's the way out? Our culture has no way out. For those of us who have been hurt and damaged by sex, listen to the good news this morning. Jesus is better than sex. He can heal. He can redeem. I'm going to talk about that word a little bit later. He can love you and fix you and heal you no matter how dirty or damaged or wounded you feel. And his love can literally lift you to the heavens. But this is where we need to do some more work. For those of us who struggle with sexual desires for the opposite sex, who other people other than our spouse, and for those of us who struggle with desires to have sex with people who are uh, of the same sex as we are, how could this be good news? That the only appropriate outlet for sex is in a marriage between a man and a female? If I have same-sex desires, how is this good news? Or if I have desires for people other than my spouse, how is this good news for me? You're telling me that the only appropriate sexual actions are within a marriage between a man and a wife? Yes. That's what I'm saying because that's what God's word says. Every other sexual action is outside of the fireplace and causes damage to the people involved and damages human flourishing as a whole. Now, I understand. You push back against that, many of you. You say, I don't believe that, Justin. I think sex was made for love. And as long as it's consenting adults, sexual activity is good and doesn't hurt anyone. Now, honestly, I don't think you really believe that. I think you've heard that, you've bought into that at surface level. It's a truism that we think we... Listen, here's one. Let me just step off to the side here. There's this shirt that's going around, and it says this. If life knocks you down six times, get up seven. Right? If you get knocked down six times, get up seven. Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Except this. I'm standing. Get knocked down. One. Get up once. Get knocked down twice. Get up twice. Get knocked down three times, four times, five times. I get knocked down six times. I get up six times. I'm back on my feet. You see, that's bad math. I can't get up seven times. I've only been knocked down six times. But we tweet this out, and we put it on our Facebook wall, and there's shirts that have it on. People walking around. I'm like, he's bad at math. <laughs> Listen, sex is made for love. It's the same argument. It's the, it's, it's the same way. Let me show you why. I don't think you actually believe it. 
What do you think about polygamy? Most of the people in here, if I know you, most of the people in this room think at some level polygamy is wrong. Having multiple wives or multiple husbands is wrong. Most of us think that's wrong. Why? If sex is made for love, using your same logic, why can't I love multiple people in a sexual way? See, your own logic, sex is made for love, doesn't work when you say that because you say, no, that's wrong. Well, why? What's your basis for saying that? You don't have a basis for saying that if you think the truism of sex is made for love is true. Not only that, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people that you love and you don't have sex with. I'm hoping that's true. Right? I know you don't. That's crazy. So sex isn't just made for love. Appreciate you, brother. I feel like a rookie up here. <clears throat> now, here's what the Bible teaches. Here's what God teaches. Sex was made for a certain type of love. Covenant love. Marriage. That's what it was built for. Between one man and one woman in a lifetime, exclusive, permanent relationship. Now, as far as, as long as nobody gets hurt, argument. What's wrong with a, with, with a hookup on Friday night? Pornography is often said not to hurt anyone. It's usually just a person alone looking at their computer or their phone and masturbating. How could that hurt anyone? Pornography and masturbation objectifies humans who have been made in the image of God. It turns subjects into objects. People into things. It pulls or attempts to pull sex completely away from all love except self-love. It's sexual selfishness that literally, science is showing us, rewires a person's neural pathways in their brain. And it's a leading motivator to sexual crimes against humanity, including rape and date rape and abuse, human trafficking, prostitution, and child exploitation. Nearly every single offender started with pornography. Not only that, the money spent on porn alone could be used to eradicate world hunger and clean water and to get clean water to every nation on earth. Porn hurts humans. It damages human flourishing. It damages your own soul. It objectifies the girl on the other end or the guy on the other end. Now, what about sex outside of marriage, Justin? Just a random hookup. How does that? Let me give you two statistics. One, the number one reason for poverty in our country is single motherhood. When sex outside of marriage results in a pregnancy, the man oftentimes, without the covenant of marriage, the man oftentimes does not provide for the child. He's a deadbeat and he takes off. Number one reason for poverty in our country is single motherhood. Number one person most likely to be poor is a single mother. Add to this, 
85% of women who get abortions are unmarried. So far this year, actually this was as of Thursday, so this number is actually higher today. So far this year, over 633,000 women have had an abortion in the U.S. 85% of those were outside of marriage. That's 538,050 babies this year, so far, by unwed moms. Sex outside of marriage doesn't hurt anyone. It's bad math. Sex taken outside of the fireplace, outside of its God-given context of marriage hurts us all. Now, lastly, what about our desires? Why would God give us desires that tell us and then tell us we can't follow them? Why would we have desires that say, I want to have sex with this person, and then he says, we can't do it? What if we have desires to be in a sexual relationship with someone of the same gender? What if I have sexual desires for people other than my spouse? Didn't God make us this way? Listen, it was Sigmund Freud who said that we are what we desire. Innate desires. The the most real thing about you is what you desire. That most true part of who we are is our sexuality. That's what Sigmund Freud taught, okay? Listen, that's not what the Bible teaches. You are not your sexuality. You are not what you desire. Freud said whatever your desires are, they're not wrong. They can't be wrong. See, he rejects creation and fall. He starts in a fallen position. Okay? Whatever your desires are, they're not wrong. They're true and they're good and you should follow them. Read Freud. See if you like him. He's a little freaky, I'm just going to say. Right? Now listen. You might say, you know what, Justin, actually, that Freud sounds right to me. I am my sexual desires are so powerful, they're so innate, they're so pervasive, they feel like the most true thing about me. Being, having homosexual desires or having heterosexual desires, it feels like the most true piece of my humanity. I know many people who feel that way and believe that way. For them to have sexual desires for the opposite sex or the same sex is the most true thing about them. For them to deny them or resist them would be to deny and resist their true identity. Listen, that is not what Jesus teaches. Jesus has a different concept of human personhood, of what's real and true about a man. So much so that in Matthew 5, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, whoever... You said that adultery is wrong. You're right. Adultery is wrong. Whoever looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. So he says, your sexual desires cause you to objectify people and sin. And this is what he says. He doesn't say, yep, that's your IDs. It's your innate desires. That's how you're created. It's the most true thing about you. If you want to find your real identity, follow that sexuality. Have multiple partners. That's not what Jesus says. You know what Jesus says? Resist them. How much so? Gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, resist them. It's better to go into heaven maimed than go to hell and follow your desires. 
Now, Jesus is making a very clear distinction here. You are not your desires, and your desires can be resisted and should be resisted to the point of shedding blood, your own blood. Jesus is saying that. I'm going to say this. Homosexual desire in itself is not sinful. Homosexual practice is sinful. We don't have to follow these desires. Now, you say right there, I knew it. That's sexually repressive and unhealthy. That leads to depression and suicide and trying to repress our feelings and, not de- and denying who we really are. I think, again, you make a category mistake there. Repressive? Yes. Unhealthy? No. I desire to eat large quantities of sugar at every meal of the day. Yeah, you laugh. I innately desire this. Donuts are the gift of God. I'm just going to say it, right? Now, I, I kind of, this is kind of, I, I don't want, I don't mean to be too funny, but I have this desire to drink soda, to eat a lot of sugar, and then I go to my dentist, and my dentist tells me I should resist that desire, you're destroying your teeth. And I go to my doctor, and my doctor tells me, you should resist that desire, it's destroying your health. That I have this innate desire to eat things, a lot of things, that are not healthy for me. And, I ha- and we all would say, or most of us would say, we should resist and repress that desire, right? Now, it's not just that. Many of us are even born with genetic dispositions toward things like alcoholism. We're born desire being kind of having this addictive personality, and we can't just have one alcoholic beverage. We have to have 10. We have to, we drink not just to enjoy the gift that God's given us and enjoy fellowship, but we drink to get drunk. The Bible calls that a sin. Even our society says you should resist those innate desires. Don't drink to get drunk. Don't drive and get drunk. Don't be an alcoholic. We have all kind of, you know, 12-step programs for that. You have an innate desire, maybe even a genetic disposition towards alcoholism, but our culture says repress it, resist it. It's not good. The Bible says the same thing about sexuality. Jesus is better than your sexuality. You are not the sum total of your desires. We are human beings who've been made in the image of God with dignity, value, and worth. But here's the kicker, guys. Genesis 2, we're created in the image of God with dignity, value, and worth. With this pure, pure, uh, pure and cleanliness of sexuality, this goodness of sexuality. But then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fell from grace. They disobeyed God, and the whole of creation was fractured. And from that moment on, we have been bent and damaged, and only God can redeem us and make us right again. God tells us in Genesis what happened. When Adam and Eve fell from grace, it brought a curse down upon everything. Therefore, listen, there is no part of mankind that has not been affected by the fall. Why do our desires 
jacked up, we're, we fell. We're born into sin. We have sin in our hearts and in our veins. That's why we desire sex outside of God's covenant of marriage. What does this tell us? If we're fallen, none of our sexual desires define us and they can't be trusted. They're fallen. They're bent. Are they real? Yes. Are they powerful? Absolutely. But there is something even more true about us than our desires. What is that? Turn to Titus chapter 2 as I close. What can be more true than our sexuality? Titus chapter 2, verse 11, verse 14. You there say there. Let's read it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now stop right there. For the grace of God has appeared. Here's the law of God. We just talk, we've talked this whole sermon about the law of God. God created sex for one context. Committed, monogamous marriage between a man and a woman for lifetime. Every other, listen please, every other sexual experience outside of that is in the category of sin. Every lustful thought is in the category of sin, and because God is just, when we disobey Him, it deserves His wrath. It deserves His punishment. It deserves His condemnation. So if you're in this room, and you've had any sexual encounter, any sexual lustful thought, outside of the covenant of marriage, you're under sin. You're under condemnation. Guess what? That means all of us, me included, See, if you had in your mind, heavens for the cleaned up ones, heavens for the really good people, heavens for the sexually pure, if you had your, and, and, your, and hells for those who use sex in the wrong way, if you had that in your mind, and that might be true, but you're not one of the pure ones. There's only one person who ever lived sexually pure, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this text is saying, when the grace of God appeared, what does that mean? That means there's hope for us in this room who've had sexually, who've broken God's sexual commands, who have sexually sinned. There's hope for us in here. All of us, whether it's an affair, and there's people who've had affairs in this room, whether it's a, you know, adultery, whether it's abortion, whether it's sex outside of marriage, whether it's addiction to, to pornography, whether you've been abused sexually. For all of us in this room, there's hope found in Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared. Jesus came from heaven. He walked this earth and lived a sexually pure life. Then he goes to the cross and he dies for all of us sexually perverse people. Christ does that. Then what happens? In the heavenlies, God counts Jesus' perfect sexual purity on our behalf. He imputes it to us and we get to receive it as a gift of faith when we turn from our sin and we believe in Jesus Christ by faith. 
And then guess what's going to happen? Right now in this life, as we believe the gospel, God goes to war with us and he, and he, and he purifies us and cleanses us in this life now to live holy lives. So the world can look at us and see what sexuality is meant for. So they can go, why is that guy's marriage so good? First off, God has redeemed us. Secondly, we have great redeemed sex, a lot of it. I really enjoy my wife's breasts. Here's my coffee cup. That's one. And it all points back to Jesus. Now watch. Let's keep reading. Let's keep reading here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. I want you to skip to verse 14 right now. What is the grace of God? That's Jesus, who gave himself, verse 14, to redeem us from all lawlessness. We don't get to make our own laws with sex. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He wants to make us holy and then send us out on mission. But look, this word redeem, I said I'd talk about it. This word redeem, many people say, oh, that's, a, that's borrowed from a pagan concept of buying back slaves. Absolutely not. It's not a pagan concept. I reject that entirely. This word redeem, when you follow it from Genesis to Revelation, it almost always, well, actually Exodus to Revelation, almost always comes back with this idea of what, what God did and rescuing those who were enslaved in Pharaoh's house, right, in Egypt. All of, you've seen the Ten Commandments, or you've seen, you know, Exodus and all this stuff, where the Israelites were living enslaved. They were slaves to Pharaoh. And God sovereignly sends this guy, this redeemer, right? Moses in. And then what does God do? Completely turns Pharaoh into a joke. Completely just shows up and just completely really annihilates his army, does all, you know, does all the plagues, blows him away. And what does he do? He leads his people. He redeems his people. He purchases them out of slavery, and then he leads them to ultimately, by the, you get to the end of Exodus, out to worship God. They were enslaved to Pharaoh, and by the end of the book, they're worshiping God. This is what it means to be redeemed. Every one of us were born slaves to sin. You think you're free? Try to stop sinning. You're not free. We're born into slavery. And to be redeemed is when you put your faith in Christ, he causes us to be born again, and we are born again, freed from sin. So now from this moment on, I am no longer a slave to sin. Sin still affects me. I still battle with it. I still have to fight it and resist it, but I'm not a slave to it. I've been freed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's purchased me as his own. I'll never go back into it. So Jesus came to redeem us from all of that. But go back to verse 12. I mean, I'll read 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And that's all types of people. All people who put their faith in Christ. Train, look at this. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace trains us. Grace equips us to fight our sexual desires. To live upright to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Grace makes us holy. Grace empowers us to fight our sin. Grace says there's something more true about you than your sexual desires. Who you are in Christ, the work that Christ has done on the cross to give you a new identity is more true about you and more powerful in you than your sinful desires are. And then what does it say? Waiting. Waiting. 
for our blessed hope. Oh God, our blessed hope. What is that? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, how can we, we resist sexually? How can we resist and fight against our sexual desires? Two ways, by knowing what Christ has done for us and perching his, this new identity for us in him. And secondly, by looking in hope to the analogy of the gospel, right? Sex is an analogy of the gospel. What's going to happen when Christ comes back? We're going to be united in him. We're going to see his glory. In the new heavens and the new earth, sex will meet its end, its telos, its goal. The uniting of Christ and his church. That's why. If you're struggling right now, and I know many of you are, maybe all of you are, struggling with your sexual desires in some way. How do you resist them? You resist them by saying, I'm resisting the hors d'oeuvre. I'm resisting the appetizer. The meal is coming. Christ is coming soon. And when he comes back, he's going to redeem all everything. He's going to renew everything. All of my desires will be made right. All of my desires will be met, be fulfilled and satisfied in Christ. So hear me this morning. You are not your desires. You are not your desires. To resist your desires in Christ, to live a celibate life until you're married with the opposite sex. It's not to resist who you are. It's not to deny who you are. It's to embrace who you really are in Christ. It's to embrace the future reality that Christ's kingdom comes back and will be renewed and will be united in him. Our true husband, Christ. So for those of us in this room who are struggling in the moment, you're not acceptable to Jesus because you're clean and you're perfect and you've obeyed him and you're buttoned up and you're put together and you've stayed sexually, sexually pure. That's not why you're acceptable to him. You're acceptable to him because Jesus was perfect where we fail. And his righteousness gets credited to us when we put our faith in him. But we don't walk, we don't receive that and then walk away and go, cool, I'm forgiven. I'll go live my life however I want to live. And then someday when I'm like 30 or something, I'll settle down and I'll start using my sexuality for God's intended purposes. We don't get to do that. If you're in Christ, you've been made new and now you live for Christ. You be sanctified, you be made holy, even in your sexual desires. Old men in this room, the two of them that are here, okay? <laughs> you know what, Titus, you know what, we're, you know what you're supposed to do? Train young men. Speak to young men like this father speaks to his son. It might be awkward. You go out to coffee, how's your sex life? Are you, are you loving your wife? Are you pursuing? Are you satisfied? Wives, you need to hear this too. If you treat sex like a commodity, that if your husband is good enough, you give him some, you're objectifying yourself, you're denying God's gift of marriage, 
I'll never say when a man chooses some other pattern, and many times it happens, sex outside of marriage, and, it, and I talk to him about his sex life, and they're, they're having sex once a year, they're having sex once a month, they're having sex, and, and I'll never say it's, that, that's, it's your wife's fault. I never say that. But wives, but wives, that's disobedient to the Lord. That's not a Christian view of sexuality. It's the world's view of sexuality. Use it as a commodity to bend his will or break his will or to control him. That's a sin against God. It's a gift to be shared in marriage. And men, even if, that's not, even if your sex life isn't going well, it is not an excuse to follow pornography or go to the strip clubs or pursue some hookup on Craigslist. It's not an excuse to do that. It's a sin against God. But it starts with openness and honesty. You need a fight club. You need a missional community. You can talk to me as your pastor. You need to talk about it. Don't try to just hide it and cover it up. It's never going to heal. It's never going to heal. We need open, honest relationships that we can talk about these things in. So, Jesus is better than your sexuality. And uh, Doc said this morning, more than likely this sermon is going to create many questions. And if you do have those questions, you can email me, you can message me, you can talk to me, you can talk to your fight club leader or your missional community leader uh, or, or just some people in the church and they can get it back to me. And maybe it did. Maybe it created all kind of questions for you. That's okay. That's okay. I'm going to close in prayer this morning. I want you to know more than anything, you are not your sexual desires. There's grace for you in Jesus. There's a new hope and a new future for you in Christ. Father, we do thank you for your grace. That grace is not this concept. It's not a concept. It's not a concept. It's not nebulous. Grace is a person. Grace is Jesus. Grace has appeared. He walked the earth. He was a man. He lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death for us to accomplish for us our salvation and empower us to fight our sin and fight for holiness and fight for sexual purity. But we lose that fight daily. We continually need to come back to the fountain of all goodness and all grace, which is Jesus. So Father, I pray this morning that you would liberate sexual captives, those who are captive to their desires, those who are ashamed, those who live double lives, here and on the internet and here and on the weekends. I pray that you would liberate them. Let them find Jesus, that Jesus is better than, the, than their sexuality, that they can drink deeply from that well that will satisfy their soul. Oh God, I pray that you would do this by your spirit, by your gospel. And as we come to the Lord's table, we come as sexually broken all of us are sexually broken people and we, we, we turn from that, we admit that, we confess our sins to you and we turn from that, we ask that you would put us back together again and that's in a sense uh, what you've done for us in Christ, that your body and this bread is broken into many pieces but it unites us as a family, it unites us with believers all across the globe this morning in one body of Christ. So Father, would we be reminded as we take the body this morning that you were broken for our sexual brokenness and we've been put back together through the power of the gospel and as we drink the cup that represents your blood that we're drinking of the new covenant that we're not counted according to our sins we're counted according to the righteousness of Christ because of his obedience for us we drink deeply of your love for us in Christ this morning in Jesus name we pray amen